Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Well, helping others in recovery can be an important element to staying sober, so much so that it is one of the steps in 12-step programs and that other pathways encourage it in various forms. And for some people, their introduction to recovery and the power of helping others leads them to a career in that field. And that was the case with today's guest, Jessica G., who went from treatment to running a sober living facility and now works as an outreach coordinator. Hello, Jessica. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jean. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm really glad to uh, have you come and share your story today. And I know that it's multifaceted and and has um, a lot of uh, intertwining, I guess, um, paths of recovery or or, um, uh, what would we say, like co-occurring issues. So. Uh, I know it's not easy to just like tell it A, B, C, D, but um, I'm really looking forward to hearing you share today. So let's just start with that. Let's start with you tell us about yourself and your story. Okay. I grew up in South Florida. Both of my parents are together still. I came from a really loving family. I have a younger brother and a younger sister that are both normies. And basically my whole life, people told me I was beautiful, I was wonderful, I could do anything, but I just, I didn't believe it. There was something inside of me that I just did not think that I was good enough from as early as I can remember. And in middle school, high school, I just felt like nobody liked me, even though I was always surrounded by a lot of people. I just felt like I was different, like there was something wrong with me. And um, I'm not really sure why that is, and it doesn't really matter at this point. I just know that today I have to work really hard to um, to be okay with me. Still, it's a struggle, but um, I believe it now more so than I ever did before. Like, it didn't matter what people said to me, that I was smart, that I was beautiful. I just, I didn't believe it. Hmm. What what went through your head when you'd hear that? Were you, would you think like that you fooled them, or that they were being nice to you, or what? How did you internalize that when you'd hear those compliments? Well, I just felt like they didn't really know me. If they really mm. knew me, they would know that there was something really wrong with me. Aww. And like I always felt, I always felt different. Like um, I think the the mental illness preceded anything else. And I would have, um, like, outbursts and, um, like, real manic moments when I was younger and, um, like, anger outbursts and not really understand why I was feeling the way that I was feeling. And um, it it was a long time ago, so there wasn't as much talk as there is today about mental illness and my parent my my family believed in therapy and took me to a therapist at a very young early age and um it just it didn't it didn't help so because i didn't know what was wrong with me right oh so it took a while to really uncover it and and so when the time came you were eventually diagnosed with two core co-occurring mental illnesses in addition to addiction. Is that right? Yes. Um, Can you- an, eating, an eating disorder, bulimia and anorexia, and also bipolar disorder. And at what age was that, Jessica? 15, about 15 or 16, um, I was going to a psychiatrist, and um, they were putting me on medication for depression and anxiety, and my eating disorder was really um, coming to a head. And um, But it's interesting how my eating disorder and my drug addiction look the same. Like when I, when, when I was in the early stages of my eating disorder, it was the lying, the stealing, the cheating, the manipulating, just as in my addiction to drugs. It looks exactly the same. Like for me, 
Um, it didn't matter what the substance it was or is. I was just trying to fill the void inside of me. Like, I'm, mm. I was always looking for something, whether it was men, whether it was sex, whether it was food, whether it was drugs. I was just trying to fix what I felt was innately wrong with me. Oh, my goodness. I think so many of our listeners can relate to that. And we could probably throw into the list of behaviors shopping and um like beauty treatments and just so many things uh-huh. that we feel like we can't get enough of because we're just oh, never yeah, good enough or never satisfied, right? right? Um, but I need yeah, to fix I, the outside to to be okay with my inside. Right. It's like chronic imposter syndrome, right? Exactly. So oh, yeah. when did your addiction start to take off? What did drugs and alcohol usage look like for you as a younger person? And when did it really become problematic or more of an addiction? Well, I experimented with um, pot in high school. And then when I was 17 and 18 years old, I believe that I was already, as soon as I picked up alcohol, I already had, I was already in full-blown addiction because of my eating disorder. So I was on a suicide mission from the beginning. From the beginning, I picked up a drink. I only wanted to drink. I remember going out and saying, I want to not remember who I am tonight. Like saying that out loud and thinking about it now, it's so sad that like a 17-year-old, 18-year-old that I felt that way, that I hated myself so much and I was mixing I was mixing alcohol and Xanax and the date rape drug, roofies. I was, you know, dosing myself. And I was just, like, on a suicide mission. I didn't care. I was blacking out. I was going, I um, at 18 years old, I went to Florida State. And um, I didn't even make it through a semester because I was so badly drinking and using drugs. So do you think that you were really just sort of playing, we call it whack-a-mole, right, of like, okay, Mm -hmm. I'll fix my eating disorder, but now my alcohol use takes off. Okay, I'll fix that, but then something else takes off. And if you don't get down to the pain. Yeah, I wasn't treating um, the the alcohol and the drugs and the food and the men and all that is just a symptom. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't treating the spiritual void. So help me figure out how that all played out for you. Like what age did you go into treatment or what really started the healing process? Because it sounds like, I mean, you had some early intervention, but it wasn't effective. When, what, what led to things changing for you? Well, at 19 years old, um, I, my parents, intervened and I went to my first treatment program. I went to a 30-day um, inpatient rehab and then I went to another program straight from there that was eating disorder and addiction. It was dual diagnosis. So I was there for six months and I was 19 years old and I was not ready. I hadn't hit a bottom. I had a bunch of people still enabling me. I got out of that treatment program and my parents got me an apartment and I just, um, I didn't, I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough pain. Like my pain was emotional, and um, I just, I wasn't done yet. Hmm. So that was at 19, and um, I was in and out of that treatment center that I was sent to for two years, in and out, in and out, in and out. And then um, I got involved with a man who um, was not good for me. And I ended up going out one night and ODing at his house while I was still in the, I was in a treatment center and I snuck out and I ended up ODing at this guy's house. And um, the treatment that I went, I was admitted to the hospital and I was, they call it in Florida, a Baker Act when um, you're trying, you know what that is? Well, someone mentioned it last week, and, you know, I didn't ask her to clarify. So could you clarify for us what a Baker sure. Act is? A Baker Act is a 72-hour hold in a hospital that they think that you're trying to take your own life. So okay. they um, they Baker Act you basically to protect yourself. 
Okay. And and anyone who like if a family member says that you are in danger of a danger to yourself, then they or could have, Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, they could call the police. It's kind of the type of thing that they call the police and then um the police brings you to the hospital. Um, and that was so that occurred in your life at age twenty one, correct? Yes, and then I was in a long term. From there, I went to a long term treatment center in Louisiana, which was really it was an all women's treatment center, um, and I was there for a year and a half. Which, like, I ended up staying clean for a little while, and I used again. But what I think about that point in my life, I was so out of control. That I needed to be away from everything to keep me alive. Like that's what I think that it was a blessing that I was there for that long, and then I stayed I, clean because I could not stay clean. So just and not, just for listeners that aren't really familiar with rehab, a year and a half is an extraordinarily long time to be in rehab, yes. is it not? To be in a program. Yes. It's a, Did you see a lot of people it's a come and go? Facility. I'm sorry. Did you see a lot of people come and go during that time? It was a long-term facility, so most oh, okay. people were there for a long, for at least a year. And how did you change during that time? Tell me about that program. What was it like? Well, we didn't really leave that much. It was a lot of, um, it was a lot of community groups, and we just. I learned how to do things I had never that I didn't know how to do. Like I was very spoiled (laughs) and I learned how to clean and to cook and to things like that. And it basically just kept me safe for 18 Mm. months. And I learned how to get along with people. I learned a little bit about myself and um, it kept me away from the, the drugs and the alcohol for a long period of time, longer than I had ever been. And what happened when you left there? I left there, I stayed in the area in an apartment, and I had a job. The thing about me is I was always, I guess like a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts were type A personalities. So um, I was always a very good worker. It's just another um, whack-a-mole replace it with work. So Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I got a job while I was there, and um, I started off, I worked at a children's clothing store, and I started off as a part-time associate, and then I got promoted to a full-time associate. Then I got um, promoted to assistant manager. And by then, I had been in Louisiana for two years. And um, I decided that I wanted to move back home to um, to South Florida, where all my family lives. So um, I moved back in, and I was, I guess, 23 at the time. So I moved back here, and I had been going to a self- 12-step program when I was in Louisiana, and I moved back to South Florida, and I started going. um, I didn't feel comfortable going to meetings. I didn't feel like um, they were the same. I missed my friends, and I just got very involved in work. And um, Mm. so that's what happens, and I started hanging out with people that were um, drinking and drugging, and I thought, Maybe it was just a phase. I was so young when um, I went to treatment, and I was so young when I first, like, maybe now I can control it. So that's <laughs> Famous what, last words, yeah. right, Jessica? <laughs> yeah, 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 like, now I'm okay. So and really, so, um, you can, in retrospect, I bet you can look back and just see bit by bit how that move, that change, the lack of support, taking away your um, – discipline around your program just sort of set you up for going back out. I wonder, um, were you diagnosed at this time with bipolar? Did you, were you actively treating? I was your... diagnosed. And so what did your treatment look like for that? Um, I was on medication. But the and thing th- about me, like many other people suffering from bipolar, like the medicine, it made me gain a little bit of weight and, um, I felt like I was lethargic. I wasn't letting the medicine do its job, and I wasn't communicating with the doctor about what was coming, going on with me, so I would just take myself off the medication. Mm-hmm. 
And probably um, if you were using alcohol too, that wouldn't, that would interfere, right? With the effectiveness of the medication. Oh, correct. Yeah. 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 But well, what usually happened with me is I would take myself off the medication and then I would start using because uh, my moods would be out so out of control. Yeah. And it was just sort of like a self-medication, self-medicating type thing. And, and especially was with the side effects of the medicine were so bad in those early, like, you know, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were that, pretty. Um, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, they didn't have all the medicines that they have now. Um, so a lot now, of them had weight gain components, which fed into my other diseases. Right. And so then did that reactivate your eating disorder as well? Or was that in, were you in a good place regarding that? No. Usually what happens with me is the eating disorder and then the medication, stop taking my medication, and then the drugs are the last thing I pick up. Uh, well, so you know I that... believe when I move staff, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I believe when I moved back to Florida, I um, I just, I really just became out of control with a lot of behaviors, and um, I had gained some weight, and I just felt like I needed to take off the weight immediately, and then that, you know, starts the whole cycle. It it just and seems so, the, so the complicated to me how like they're so. Like they're multilayered and interwoven these these three conditions, and where do you start like now, like in terms of treating it, like do you pick one and deal with that and say like, okay, the eating disorder and bipolar are not as important as staying sober, like do you treat one as the primary goal to stay say sober first and then treat the others or to stay um you know, balanced with bipolar and then worry about the others? Do you prioritize wellness in one area well, over the others, or do you try to treat them all the same? Well, they all feed into each other. So I have three and a half years um, in recovery now, and um, I had to stop using drugs. And then I stopped using drugs and the food popped up again, like, um, and exercise and things like that. And, um, but the main, but I've been pretty good in terms of my eating disorder. The first couple of years I was okay. And then my second year, my, um, the, my medication was not okay. And um, if I I was really holding on and not wanting to pick up, and I um, feel like if I hadn't gotten my medication under control, then I would have picked up. You have three years of sobriety. Congratulations on that. Thank you. How many years did you spend trying to get those three years? Well, um. 36 right now and I the first time I went to treatment I was 19 and I had a few years a couple of times but this is the first time really that I've worked on every one of my things every one of my issues I've tried to work on and they pop up at different times right right You'll never be in a place where you can say everything is completely level now for the rest of my life. I mean, no one can ever say that, but you must have to know that you're always going to have to adjust with the ebb and flow of these conditions, correct? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And what do you think made the difference this last time? Um. I think that I just had enough. And what happened was um, I come from a family of enablers. And this last time I um, I got clean November, November 1st mm-hmm. of 2013. And the year before I had had an episode where I had a seizure. I had um, tried to take myself. I ran out of benzos and I had a seizure. And my mom and my dad rushed to the hospital, and my mom stopped by my um, 
hospital said and told me this is the last time we're coming to the hospital for a drug-related um, or drug-related issue for you. Like, we love you, but we can't watch you kill yourself. And I'm very close with my family. I come from a very close-knit family. And um, a year later, I, um, like I said, I had always been enabled, and my parents had gotten me my umpteenth apartment, and with them, in a month, I was using. So um, my mom had started going to her own 12-step program at the time. And um, she had come with a friend of hers to my apartment to take my car. She, I was so out of it. She took my car, and I called her. And I think that I just – i it's a little fuzzy, but I tried to take everything that I had in my house, and I called her, told her I want to kill myself. I can't do this anymore. And she called the police, and I was Baker acid again. And no one came to the hospital to see me, and I just felt completely alone. I felt mm-hmm. like this is not how I want to live my life. Like, I saw that there could be a different way just because from the years I had been in and out of a 12-step fellowship, like, friends of mine had 12 years clean, 10 years clean, and they were moving on and getting jobs and getting lives and getting married and having babies, and that wasn't happening for me. I was mm-hmm. saying stuck. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I had, even though I didn't feel it, I knew that I had some potential and that um, things could be possible for me. I just didn't know where to begin. And I sort of surrendered when I was in that hospital. Ah, you were ready at that point. I was ready, yeah. And then what happened? Then I was um, I was in the hospital and I decided to go into a treatment center. Actually, the treatment center that I went to was the same treatment center that I had been a year before when I was playing them. I was playing them, and they did not have my number. The second time when I went in, they had my number. They knew who I was. They had my number, and they weren't (laughs) letting me um, manipulate them anymore. And um, they told my parents that I needed to take care of myself and they needed to take care of themselves. And I wasn't allowed to use the phone. I wasn't allowed to call anyone. I was just focusing on myself and everything was taken away from me. Ah. Like I had nothing. So I was able to be completely, um, I just completely freaked out when I was there because I had nothing to like help me cope and I had to learn how to talk about what was going on with me and I was not happy about it <laughs> and I so, did not do it gracefully. I was going to say, I bet you weren't too happy about any of that. Oh, how long no, did it take you happy. to start to feel like a little, to start to shift? When, when did that start to change for you? Um, I think that I think that I'm trying to say it shifted when I was in treatment, but I got out and they there was a bunch of rules enforced upon me that I didn't want to follow, that I didn't want to follow, and I was sort of in self will again. And it's amazing I didn't pick up, but after about a month of being on self will, um, I decided to surrender again, and I called my now my now boss and I asked for help. I had known her for probably 10 years from the rooms, and um, I knew that she had a halfway house, and I called her, and I said, I have nothing. I have no money. I have um, – my family's not helping me anymore, and I want to get better. I don't really know what to do or how to begin. And she said, you can come to my halfway house. You can stay. You have two weeks to get a job, to get a sponsor, to get a home group. And um, we'll take it from there. So that's what I did. Like, I didn't have anything. I didn't have a a car. It was very, very humbling for me because I sort of always thought that I was um, something because of my stuff. And my stuff, although I always worked, my stuff really came um, from my family. They had given me everything. And when I ran out of my own stuff, the money that I earned, I would just take from them. So really, I I never was without my entire life. So um, 
this was a big, big lesson for me, and I had to ask for help, which was super hard for me because I always had, like, a face on that I was okay. So then you went to stay in that sober living facility and what, or, or halfway house, as you call it. Tell us about that. What what was that like and what's involved in that? Well, I was living at the beginning when I didn't have any money. I was in the um, the scholarship. I was in a scholarship house, and um, they the houses that these owners, that these people, women had, they've owned the house for many, many years. And um, they run, like, a really tight, um, a tight ship. Like, I would, I had a curfew. I had to tell, I had to get a job. I had to work the 12 steps with my sponsor. I had to check in with someone. And there are six other women living in the house. So you really have to learn how to communicate. And it's hard, like, sometimes people will take your stuff without asking. You have to learn how to live and to interact with other people. And for me, I had never done that before. It was always Mm -hmm. about me, 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 me. So it really was a good lesson for me. And it taught me how to, to, you know, think about somebody else and maybe, you know, um, just how to live with other women, which is an important skill. Was everyone there sober? Were they all there for the same reasons? And Everyone did you was there for the same reason? Did you go to meetings together or did you have meetings there at the house? What what's that like? There is a meeting once a week at the house or the house meeting. There is a meeting within walking distance from the house and I was so committed to my recovery that I walked all over I live in Fort Lauderdale. I walked all over Fort Lauderdale to find meetings because I wasn't a big fan of the bus. So I literally walked all over Fort Lauderdale, and the owner of the halfway house would see me just walking (laughs) because I was so committed. And actually, after two weeks, I had found a job. Oh, and this is something else I want to mention. I had always had sales jobs, and the therapist, when I was in treatment, told me that I should get, like, they call it a recovery job, like something easy, something mindless. So I started working at a yoga studio. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was a yoga studio that I walked to from my house, and I really couldn't afford much. I could afford um, to pay rent, to buy food, to buy cigarettes, and I got to do yoga for free. And it was the best thing that – yeah, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because my anxiety was always so high that I, I was able to learn how to breathe and learn how to practice and you know, yoga is so great for people in mm-hmm. recovery, I feel like. Yeah, I agree. That was a win. And then you also went on to manage that sober living facility. Is that correct? So after a year, the owners had asked me um, to manage it because I was taking um, some responsibilities um, within the house, like checking curfews, and I was getting a little bit money you know, off my rent. And something happened with the manager. She was leaving, so they asked me to manage the house. So it gave me some um, type of responsibility and accountability, and it really taught me um, about how my disease affects other people because I saw what it was like when somebody um, relapsed or when their disease behaviors came out, and it's hard to see that in yourself, but it's easier to see that in somebody else. So it gave me a lot of compassion and empathy um, for my family and people that really put up with me for the years of me using and acting, you know, acting out. Did and you reach so, out to them and, and share that with them? Me. Did you What's reach that? out to your family? Did you reach out to your oh, family yeah. and share with them? And how, tell me about that conversation. How did they feel about that? Well, um, the, the first year with my family was a little bit shaky and my brother actually got engaged um, in my first year and got married um, on my first year anniversary. And my dad told me after the wedding that because my MO was always um, come to come to family functions late, not show up, something big would happen, and I wouldn't be able to be there. I would be in the hospital or I'd be in rehab or some crazy thing, and I wouldn't be able to be at the family events. So my dad told me after the wedding 
that he was so pre- he was so worried before the wedding that I wasn't going to be able to be there for my brother. And it was like such a good feeling when I was when it was when I was able to be there for somebody else and there was an event for someone else and that was okay. Like I was there, I showed up, I was present and I told my family, you know, how I started to be a member of my own family. I had never been it was always about what people can do for me. And did you start to feel a new kind of connection? Like how did that feel for you when you started engaging with them on a different level? Well, I felt like I was more a part of and not so much an outsider. I always felt like I was an outsider, like the black sheep, like there was something wrong with me. Yeah. And although, like, nobody nobody put that on me, I just felt, I just felt like that. Yeah. And did that go, that and started so, to go away? Yeah. It started to go away. Um, the more, like, I started going... I mean, it was hard. The wedding was hard. And then um, my sister, who's seven years younger than me, got engaged and got married in my second year. But um, I realized, like, everyone's on a different journey. We're all on different paths. And I was on a completely, I'm on a different, completely different path from my family, and that's okay. It doesn't make it better or worse. It's just what it is. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the halfway house and your experience um, there. Um, Actually, what I want to know is, like, who is, like, most likely, who's best served in a house like that, in your opinion? Like, um, a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with all the different forms of treatment. So, like, who is that a really good option for living in a sober house? Somebody that completed treatment. And it's clean like 30 or 60 days and it's committed to their recovery. And usually a lot of times they'll go to um, an IOP. It's intensive outpatient. Mm -hmm. And they'll do that in conjunction to going to treatment. Like they would have already been to treatment for, let's say, 60 days. Then they get out, they're getting discharged from treatment, but they're stepping down. Instead of going to groups every day, they'll be going to groups three times a week. Plus, they get a job. It's like a slow process into um, back into the real world. Um, so to speak. It took me a long time to understand the difference between all of the different ways that people can get sober, some of the different um, treatments that are available. So I just wanted to talk for a quick minute about what some of those different things are. So... Um, an inpatient program is where you stay at a facility and are go to um, therapy and um, possibly receive medication, correct? Correct. And detox step, is different the first than... Step, yeah. Detox, detox is, is the first step. Okay, so explain what detox is. Detox is when... Someone has a is addicted to something like alcohol or benzos or heroin. They need to wean them off slowly. So you go to a facility that specializes in it. There's doctors doctors on staff, and they um, wean you off the drugs and alcohol slowly. So detox addresses like the physical aspect of getting off Correct. the drug. But then if you just went to detox and then went back to your usual life, you'd probably just go back to using again. So then comes in rehab, which is where you sort of learn how to live without the drugs or alcohol. And rehab can either be inpatient treatment or outpatient treatment, correct? Correct. Yeah. And then... It just depends. Like some people start with IOP, then they need a higher level of care. So they go to a higher level of care, which is the inpatient treatment. And then they continue on after that. They do intensive outpatient from there and then just outpatient. And so then they kind of get back to their normal life again, but continue with a recovery program, like a 12-step program that they might go to once a week or every day or whatever they fit into their life. Or like a lot of our listeners, their recovery program could be something that they sort of patchwork together on their own as well. And now I'm noticing that there's a few other 
um, options coming up. And some of them we've talked a little bit about on this show before, but one of them is sober coaching, which is becoming really popular. And sober coaching almost sort of replaces, for people that don't go to a 12-step program and have a sponsor, a sober coach is very similar to a sponsor for someone that is recovering outside of a 12-step program. Or you can still use a sober coach in a 12-step program. And then sober companion is something else. Have you had any experience with sober companions? I haven't. I know somebody that was a sober companion, and you sort of um, take the person around to their doctor's appointments, go to events with them, stay with them day in and day night, day in and out. Right. But I don't personally have any so that I, I always think that would be such an interesting job, like sober companion to the stars or something. Yeah, sober companions to... are not cheap. They are not no, cheap. No, that's not no. that's right. But for people that really don't have any healthy um relationships in their life, it can be a way to sort of drop someone into their life and help them see what um day to day living looks like as a sober person and with a sober person. Okay, well, that's great. I just wanted to go over some of those things. And um, when you were running that sober living facility, you kind of got burnt out doing that. And so can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what unfolded for you during that time? Sure. I started working in a sober living house, and it's like a one-year job usually not more than a year because it has sort of a burnout rate and I became sort of obsessed with the job like I was afraid I felt like the job was keeping me clean number one I had never been clean for as long as I have and I felt sort of like um I I just I needed to be there all the time I needed to make sure that everyone was okay if I wasn't if I wasn't there, then they weren't going to stay clean. And, you know, I the house was keeping me clean, and I was keeping everyone else clean. And I just, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I wasn't doing any, I stopped going to meetings. I stopped going to yoga, which had helped me so much in my recovery. I didn't go out with my friends anymore. Like, my whole life revolved around this sober house. And it was not the healthiest, and I sort of had a breakdown. And... I um it, it the owners had told me that I need to that it was time for me to move on but I was really afraid that I felt like this sober house was keeping me that it was keeping me sober and it was mm-hmm. keeping me clean and that just I I was afraid to live on my own and to I ended up um I stopped taking my medication and I got I lost a lot of weight in a short amount of time and I ended up having to be hospitalized um, to get, because I was having a, a bipolar episode and I needed to get back on track. Anyway, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. I didn't use. Thank God I didn't use. And thank God I asked for help. That um, I said that I needed help and I had people in my life that knew that I wasn't okay. That, that the way that I was acting was not me. That it was something else. And so... Um, I'm lucky that I had a support system of people, and I'm glad that um, I was able to get the help that I needed. So that ended my um, my tenure as a halfway house manager. <laughs> <laughs> and what does your life look like now? Well, actually, the owners also own a treatment center, so I work for them at the treatment center now, and I um, I help people get into treatment and also like if we're not the right fit for them then um i help um steer them to a place that may be the right fit for them because you know everyone has different paths to recovery and different treatment models are good for different people and it's not a one size fits all do you live on your own or do you live at the facility no i live on my own and do you go to meetings? Do you go to? Do you have a a tribe of uh, fellow recovery people, or what's your support I like? I do. I go to meetings. I have a sponsor. I have women. I have men that I am friends with. I have some healthy relationships, and I've had um, 
throughout my recovery this time. And I've really learned, like, relationships have always been difficult for me. And um, I've really learned how to communicate in this past three and a half years. And um, my go-to was always to push people away. And I've learned how to work through some of that stuff that, um, you know, just because I'm mad at someone or someone's mad at me, do I have to end the relationship? I can hear that even in your story. Like when you talk about past times of crisis, you isolated and ultimately caused harm to yourself and put yourself in an even bigger crisis. And this time, what was different this last time is that you reached out for help and things got better instead of worse. Yeah, exactly. Hmm, Lesson learned, hey? Hard lesson, but. I know, it's true. And also I continue, I go to yoga about five times a week, which really helps me. In addition to meetings, yoga helps me tremendously. Yeah, I love yoga too. I I never thought those words would come out of my mouth because when I was when I was active, I um was definitely like on the hamster wheel of life. I never wanted to slow down long enough to self-reflect. You know, I just I went 100 miles an hour all day and then I pretty much drank myself to sleep and yoga just sounded like a nightmare to me because it was all that stillness and I did not want to be alone with myself. And now it's the greatest. It really was, Mm -hmm. it was what I needed all along really. And uh, I was so blinded to that, that, yeah. Uh, I I sometimes wonder if listeners of the bubble hour get tired of hearing me talk about yoga, but um, I really find it great in the same way. A lot of our listeners love running and I think running does a similar thing too, where, Mm-hmm. Uh, people, you know, it's just sort of lets you be calm and still. I mean, knitting does the same thing, right? Um, yeah. Any sort of like um, just mind clearing thing. But five times a week, that's a lot well, of yoga. Good for thing. you. <laughs> yeah, and I have um, a short addictive story about running. So I decided I wanted to start running. And um, have you heard of the Heron Project? No. Uh, well, Chris Heron um, is a basketball player, and he start, he got into um, drugs and alcohol, and it ended his career. Anyway, he, he got clean, and he started um, a foundation to help other people get into recovery and find different means. So they have, um, they have runs that they do, the Heron Project runs. And so I decided that I wanted to run a half marathon. And um, my colleague and I um, decided we were going to do it together. And she's a runner. And I was not running (laughs) at all. Anyway, it came closer and closer to the race, and I hadn't trained. So I did a half marathon without training for it in (laughs) Massachusetts in April. (laughs) And did you complete that half marathon? How did I that go for you? Half marathon. <laughs> oh mm-hmm. my goodness! Did I hear oh, you yeah. say that you're a smoker, or have you given up cigarettes? I gave up right before the race. A month before the race, I decided <laughs> that you know I can't run a half marathon if I'm going to be smoking. So I quit. So now I've been I've been not smoking for three months. <laughs> oh, congratulations! That's really good. Thank so you. You're definitely a stubborn and determined person, aren't you? Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're putting that. I decide that I'm going to do something, use. and I do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's wonderful that um, that decision included recovery and sobriety and wellness for you and that you're reaching out to others uh, to help them find the same. I'm wondering, as you um, are speaking in this interview, to you know, a lot of people who are either um, considering uh, getting sober, or um, even if we've been sober for a while, we often hit a rough patch. I mean, for me, every anniversary is rough, um, and things have come up in my life lately, you know, losing a parent, or, I mean, there's just always stuff in life that takes us back a little bit. So I just wonder, sort of, what are your go-to words of encouragement for life after, uh, life in recovery and life in sobriety? Um, that it gets better, that um, a drink or a drug will not solve the problem. And you can get through anything sober. You could get through death. 
you would get through loss, you can get through loss of a job, bankruptcy. Like, I've seen so many people go through horrible, really hard things with the support of others and just talking about it. And it's hard and it sucks and life is not easy sometimes. But um, there's always an upside and um, using is not the answer. It, at least it's not the answer for me today because it never made things any better because the problem is still there. Like the person is still gone. You still don't have a job. You still don't have any money. Like the issues are still there. Mm-hmm. And now you have a drug or a drinking problem on top of that. <laughs> <laughs> well said. I have one more question for you, and it's one I I uh, yeah. didn't really prepare you for, but I'm sure you'll have an easy answer for it too. Um, as you talk about um, your your health and your mental health and your sobriety, um, a lot of us in recovery say that ultimately we're grateful for our addiction because it healing that has led us to greater healing in our life. I'm wondering, in your case, do you also, are you in a place where you also have gratitude for your eating disorder and for being bipolar, or do you, are you still working on that? I'm working on it. (laughs) It's a day at a time. I mean, um, I know that I can give other people experience, and I can, because there's other women, there's other people that go through what I've been through. So, and I sort of um, have experience with it. So I think that I can use my experience to help other people. I think that's where the gratitude can come in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm very... be able to help somebody else. Yeah. And thank you for being willing to do that by sharing your story today because these things are hard to talk about. And um, I think it is why we have so many listeners as do other recovery podcasts because we need to hear it. You know, we need to hear each other's story so we can hear the me too. Even if our um, isms aren't the same, I think I can almost guarantee that almost every listener to the show can relate to what you said about not feeling good enough or feeling like the insides don't match the outsides. And then it comes out in other ways and um, and leads us to some very dark places. Do you have any final thoughts before we um, close out our conversation today? I'm just um, really grateful to be able to, um, that you asked me to do this. And um, if anyone ever, you know, needs to reach out, then I'm here. They can email well, me you. or whatever. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you so much. So listeners, if you do want to connect with Jessica, you can email it to me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I'll make sure that Jessica gets your message. And um, Jessica, I just I thank you so much for sharing your story with us and also for the work that you're doing. And I think it's beautiful that you've come full circle to where you've not only learned how to connect with your family and with yourself, but that you are using all that to help others heal. That's like the greatest ending, <laughs> the greatest happy thank ending to every story. <laughs> Um, so listeners, you can stream this and all our past episodes at blogtalkradio.com slash bubble hour. You can also find us on iTunes and remember if you would be so kind to live a review on iTunes, which helps others find our show. So you never know whose life you're changing with that simple little act of service. So everyone, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, take good care. I own it, I did it, not proud but